The rest of us this morning are going to be in Matthew 28, and so if you have a Bible, I'll ask you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 28, and we will be looking at, as we call it, the Great Commission. And when people hear those two words together, Great Commission, there are all different kinds of responses. People feel all different ways. Some people immediately think to themselves, I'm excited, Great Commission, talks about going, and and this is good. Other people hear Great Commission and they become frightened because they don't want to go and they they don't want to open their mouths and evangelism is frightening to them. And other people hear Great Commission and I guess they're indifferent because by now maybe they've heard a hundred sermons in their life on the Great Commission. Other people hear Great Commission and they feel guilty because they don't evangelize and there are all kinds of things Uh, that happen when we hear Great Commission. That's the sermon today. Some of you are feeling some of those things, perhaps, or one of those things. But unfortunately, there's one response that if I were going to guess, I would guess doesn't come very often when people hear Great Commission. And that is to respond by immediately thinking, not about being afraid, not about being guilty, not about even being motivated, but to have the first thought be, when you hear Great Commission, is to think, Christ is great. To think about the Great Commission being before it is about anything else, being about the greatness of Christ. But we will see today in the text of the Bible, from the words from G- of Jesus, that the Great Commission, while it is about lots of other things, before it is about anything else, the Great Commission is about the greatness of Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate motivator for us to go. It's the ultimate motivator for us to speak. It's the ultimate motivator. He is. I hope and pray that when you leave today, I hope you've learned things, I hope you've been challenged, I hope you've been encouraged, but I hope that when you think Great Commission, before you think anything else, you think... Christ is great. He is great. As we look at Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we will be able to identify four great universals in the Great Commission that emphasize the greatness of Christ. Four great universals in the Great Commission that emphasize the greatness of Christ. Here they are. Number one, universal authority. Universal authority, verse 18. Number two, universal reach. Universal reach in verse 19. And I will explain these as we go. Number three, universal obedience in verse 20. And number four, universal presence. Universal presence in verse 20 as well. So universal authority, 18. Universal reach, 19. Universal obedience, 20. Universal presence, 20 as well. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out my outline. I looked at those four uses of the word all, even with all ways. And lo and behold, I have a sermon outline. (laughs) These are my favorite kinds of sermon outlines. Uh, I feel like I should, you know, return half of my pay for the week uh, because it's right there. That's the way that ends up being so powerful when we can try to find, if you will, the Holy Spirit's outline for us. Four universals in the Great Commission emphasizing the greatness of Christ. And that's what we'll see this morning and I trust we will be impressed. Look with me at the first universal that emphasizes the greatness of Christ, the universal authority of Christ. Look at verse 18 with me if you would and we'll read there. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all, there's our universal authority, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And if you read that out of context, you're probably not impressed, number one. Or you're, you're impressed with what an egomaniac Jesus is. Just take it right out of its context, read it, and you think, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And you think, that guy is an egomaniac or, or something. What's the deal? That's a huge claim. 
But if you read that like you read other literature, in context, it's a whole different ballgame. Let me reread it with some liberties, what I will call contextual enhancements. I'm not trying to add to the Bible. I'm not trying to change the Bible. But what I am trying to do is keep us from having to read Matthew 1.1 through Matthew 28.17 in light of the context, in light of the context of the whole book, in light of the context of chapter 27 and His crucifixion, in light of the context of His death, in light of the context of His resurrection. Let me reread that. You can look with me. Contextual enhancements included. Verse 18 would read this way. And Jesus, having claimed to be the divine Son of God and long-awaited eternal sovereign King, who would give Himself to violently die a sinner's death and bear the wrath of God that sinners deserve, only to be buried because He was in fact dead, that Jesus, keep reading, came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In context, he's not an egomaniac. He's speaking with great logical consistency. You may despise the fact that Jesus said that. You may hate Jesus and have, want to have nothing to do with him. But you can't accuse him rightly of being illogical. Of having a bad argument. If he in fact was uniquely born into this world lived a perfect life, according to plan, was crucified, bore the wrath of Almighty God on behalf of sinners, died, which is what happens when you're crucified, you're surely dead, and then He was buried, which is what happens after you've been crucified, because you will be surely dead, and then He rose again from the dead. Guess what? He has all authority. He has every right to say with perfect consistency and logic and rationale, I have all authority on heaven and on earth. I'm unique from everyone else. I am different. I stand in a whole different zone from everyone else. And all of a sudden, it makes sense. You see, the resurrection after crucifixion, after death, after being judged by His own Father on our behalf, the resurrection is God's stamp, if you will. His final proof, if you will, to say in saying, He is the one. He is the one. Let me read my favorite commentary on the, Bible, on the Gospel of Matthew. Here we have been five years in the Gospel of Matthew. Some of my commentaries I'm ready to put on Amazon for sale because they were worthless. Some of them have been just fantastic. My favorite commentary out of all commentaries on the Gospel according to Matthew talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Listen to what it says. Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Oh, by the way, that's from the book of Romans. Best commentary on Matthew. God declared. He put the world on. He announced before the whole world. And He boasted in His Son. And He said, look! He's my Son. The divine, unique One. And I've given you my final proof. Having had Him crucified violently beaten, dead, buried. I raised him from the dead. He's my son. And so for Jesus to say, I have all authority, just makes sense. Philippians chapter 2 would be another great commentary on the book of Romans. I'm not sure which one I would prefer. I might be struck by lightning if I said one is better than the other. But if you turn to Philippians 2, if you can find it uh, rather quickly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. It's another great commentary on, on the resurrection which helps us to realize and know and understand why Jesus would say He has universal authority. We'll talk about implications in just a, in just a moment, but let's, let's see this in another context. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, talking about Jesus, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So he's, he's God, eternal, and then he, he becomes one of us. That's the humility. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Well, that's universal authority, right? Yep. Of those who are in heaven and on earth. That's a lot like what we just read in Matthew's uh, gospel, right? Yep. Universal authority. And under the earth. That's universal authority on steroids. Verse 11. And, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's universal authority, right? To the glory of God the Father. Just complimenting what we saw. Because He came and became one of us and lived for us and died for us and then rose again from the dead, there should be no question. King of kings, Lord of lords, authority, universal, everywhere, on the earth, above the earth, under the earth. Jesus, as I've said so many times in Matthew, is in charge. He absolutely is in charge. He is the king. He is the sovereign one, which is what Matthew's been trying to show us. And we see his universal authority here. Now, vested with that kind of authority, let's ask ourselves the question. I'll ask you the question. What are some of the implications of this? Well, we'll get to the Great Commission, but before we get to that, some of the implications of Jesus having universal authority. Well, there are at least a couple big ones that I would at least like to to mention and get you to think about if you're not already thinking about them. One would be that given His great authority, His commission should be should be heeded, right? We, we, we should listen to Him and we should obey what He's about ready to say. That's the obvious one. He has every right to command everyone to do whatever he wants to command them to do because he's the universal king because he has all authority over everybody. So we should be impressed with that. The Great Commission is binding. It is weighty because he has all authority. Here's the hard question then. What are we saying when we don't make disciples? What are we saying when we don't do evangelism? Well, we we probably you know don't mean it in a heavy way high-handed way, but by our actions, we're, we're really saying that Jesus doesn't have all authority. Because if Jesus has all authority and you really believe He has all authority, guess what? You'll do what He says. That's kind of convicting. I think it should be. To make it a little bit more high-handed, there are some who say, I just had my blood boil not too long ago reading a book, a bestseller book promoted by pastors, videos by this author promoted by pastors all over the place. And he says the problem with Christianity today is we need to stop emphasizing conversion and simply love people. Well, if that's true... If we need to stop emphasizing conversion, you know, like go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's like conversion. If he's right, then Jesus doesn't have all authority. Oh, and by the way, who is the authority? Him. These are big, this is a big deal for us. We really need to, to come to grips with the fact that before Jesus tells us what to do, He shows us that He has every right to tell us what to do. He's the universal King. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the Lord of all. And I take it, I wrote even in my notes, when He says all authority has been given to me, I think He meant it. And it has implications. Otherwise, we're simply in charge ourselves, whether it be as a church or as individuals. Well, that's the positive implication. Some of you think that's negative. And that's the positive one. If he says it and he has all authority, it's binding. We should do it. The negative side of it would be, if he has all authority, that means, therefore, Jesus has all authority because he rose from the dead. Please think about this. Just be logical. That means that Every other religion in the world 
and every other religious leader and every other lowercase g God is equally false. Right? Jesus, after rising from the dead, God's stamp of approval, says, therefore, in light of that, (laughs) all authority, he doesn't give any qualifiers, all authority has been given to me. Jesus doesn't share his authority with Shiva. He doesn't share his authority with Buddha. He doesn't share his authority with Mohammed. He doesn't share his authority with anyone without equivocation, without qualification. He says, all of it's mine. And if he's just another religious leader, he is a whack job. But he's shown himself to be everything he claimed to be with God's stamp of approval. He rose again from the dead. He, he is in a totally different category from all other leaders or teachers or gods. He's totally different. That's what this all is about. He's unique. because, And this is plowing the field, if you will, for him to be able to say, go and make disciples of everybody. That wouldn't make any sense. He'd be infringing upon the rights of other gods and other religions. But if he is the only one who's been raised from the dead and he has all authority, this all makes sense. Again, hate Jesus if you want to. I wouldn't advise it because he's in charge of those who are on the earth, above the earth, and under the earth. Satan's not in charge of hell. Jesus is. So I wouldn't advise being against him. But don't accuse him of not making sense. He makes lots of sense. Unique individual to rise again from the dead after dying in our place. All authority. He's the one. Why would anyone want to follow anyone else? Why would we want to follow another God or another religious leader when they, in fact, will one day, according to Philippians 2, bow the knee and acknowledge the sovereign lordship of Jesus? Even if it's in the lake of fire. It just shows the perversion of of all religion apart from seeing the uniqueness and the universal authority of Jesus. I realize this is about as politically incorrect as you get. Violating all current social norms of pluralism. But the only way you can get Jesus to jive with pluralism and fit with pluralism is to do what Don Carson says in his book, and that's to gag God. You have to put a gag in God's mouth for pluralism to work for Christians. Because God's not pluralistic. God has one son. He's very pleased with him. He said, listen to him. And he gave his perfect stamp of approval that he really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the divine son, by raising him from the dead. And this should be good news to us. Life is not a riddle. Religion is not a riddle. If Jesus rose from the dead. This is amazing stuff. When it comes to other gods, Jesus does not play well with others. <laughs> He's not a good sharer. He will not give His authority or His glory, I should say, to another. But that's what God's been saying throughout the Old Testament. Without qualification, I say, God, help us to, to, to know who Jesus really is. And life will make a lot more sense. Well, that's just the foundation for what we really need to see now, but it's the best part. Second, great universal built upon the first in the Great Commission, stressing the greatness of Jesus is, number two, universal reach or universal scope of outreach. Built upon the authority, look at verse 19. Go, therefore. Next time you hear a sermon that starts with chapter 28 verse 19, protest. Say, what about verse 18? I get suspicious. I don't know where they're going to go with this because it doesn't really have the weightiness of, of the connection to the therefore. Because he's in charge of everything. He's the sovereign king over everyone. Therefore, he has the right to tell you what to do. Go! Or literally, make disciples as you are going. 
It's the universal reach. Go, therefore, and make disciples. There's our universal word of all the nations. And again, I just have to say it. You may not like Jesus, but you can't justifiably accuse Him of not having a good argument. All authority. He has every right to then tell people what to do and to tell them to go to all peoples and have all peoples bow the knee and follow Him as the Sovereign Lord. Because He has all authority. It's just an ironclad argument, if you will. So many times we say, well, you know, Christianity doesn't make a lot of cognitive sense. You just have to take it it on faith. I think that's way overused. I take the, the cognitive facts... And believe them, that is, I, 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 entrust, I trust them, I depend upon them, yes, faith is critical. But it's not faith in faith. This is, this is faith in the words of Christ that, that, that make lots of sense. Universal reach, all the nations? Again, that wouldn't make any sense if Jesus has some authority. But if He has all authority... Everyone should be his follower. All the nations. In the Greek New Testament, all the nations is panta ta ethne. Where we get ethnic groups, where we get nations. Really, all the nations, good translation. Some have taken it and said, you can see the idea maybe perhaps in its fullness by understanding that could be translated all the ethnos, all the people groups. All the different kinds of peoples. No one is beyond the target audience. Doesn't matter what your religious background is. Doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter how your parents raised you. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Today, as experts tell us, there are some uh, 190 plus different nations on the planet, the way it's divided up today. Target audience. All of them. Doesn't matter what color, doesn't matter what language, doesn't matter their heritage. Make disciples of all of them. How could that make sense? That seems kind of rude to go and, you know, step over those boundaries and, you know, it makes sense if Jesus has all authority and he's the only one to raise from the dead. Makes all the sense in the world. If we fast forward a little bit and seeing Jesus as the universal sovereign, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5 and we can look into the future and see how much this makes sense, not only from the past, but also in the future. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, you see that this, this is absolutely where God is going. It's all about His Son and His universal sovereignty over everything and it's ultimately for His glory. It's going to include people of German descent like me, British, African, Chinese, Mexican, Argentinian, Ugandan, Indian, Russian, Israeli, and everything else in the 190 plus. It's not an American thing. Look at Revelation, 9, uh, Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, they're singing regarding Christ as you will see, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men, here we go, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he, he could have just used any one of those, but the idea is to even use synonyms so you see that it's all-encompassing. He's the unique Savior. He's the unique Sovereign over all peoples. He's not the United States Savior. He's not merely the, the, the Israeli Savior. He, he is the one and only Savior. Because He's the one and only Sovereign. Because He's, he's the one and only uh, one who, who was raised from the dead. And God said He's the one. It's universal reach. Because He's the one with universal authority. <laughs> but we look to the future. And I think I said the past, but we hadn't gotten there yet. Makes sense in the future. Makes sense here in the gospel account. But let's go back and see that this this thing, Christianity, this Christianity business, is not something new. For Christ to have everything, and for Christ to be the King, this isn't a new concept. This isn't a, a this isn't Judaism uh, gone rogue. This is God again logically unfolding His perfect plan regarding His perfect Son. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, it's just the classic text, and you'll see so much similarity between Daniel 7 and Matthew 28. 
you'll be impressed. Even in the wording. So if you find the book of Daniel, perhaps you're, you're not going to get there in time. That's fine. You can jot it down and look at it later. But if you go to Daniel, see, th- this is what God has been planning all along. It's all about Christ being the king over all peoples. We should acknowledge that. We should tell all peoples about him. Therefore, he has all authority. He's the only one who's raised from the dead. And in Daniel 7, we see this. Looking to the future, it says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. We know who that is. Just read any part of the New Testament. Was coming, and, and, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. The Father, no doubt. And was presented before him. And to him, the Son, was given dominion. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word is exousia which is the same word we have translated authority in Matthew 28. This, this, this is that. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's the same verbiage. So we go on and read, glory and a kingdom. This is, this is Matthew. That all the peoples, nations, right? In the Greek version of the Old Testament, panta, ta, ethne, same phrase, same verbiage. It's almost like it's the same passage. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. Which is Daniel's way of saying they might be disciples, right? They're they're, they're under Him. They're serving Him. His dominion, His authority, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. This is an eternal ruling, an eternal sovereignship, if you will. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's going to go on and on and on and on. This, This is that. This is good. This is consistent. This is for us to see that Jesus is the one that God was talking about to begin with. This is to see great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Christianity isn't a rogue religion, some newfangled sort of idea, uh, 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 maybe something that came up last minute. It all goes together. God planned from the beginning to have a sovereign ruling king who was different than David, who was different than Solomon, who could rule and reign forever and have perfect authority over all the nations. Notice it's not just Israel. In Matthew 28, Jesus speaks and goes out of his way to speak. Daniel 7 speak. Isn't it good? You might be able to tell I kind of get excited about it. This is great stuff. All authority that leads us to then go and tell all peoples that Jesus has all authority. He's been raised from the dead and He's the King and you should believe in Him and submit to Him. Right? And be His disciple, to be His follower, to be His learner, to be His subject. Right? He's the king. He's the sovereign. He has all authority. Guess what it means to be a disciple? Well, yes, it means learner. Yes, it means follower. If he's the king, you're his subject with all the rights and privileges we can read about in Ephesians. But this is magnificent. It's all for his glory. Well, there's something that we do with these disciples that we make of all different peoples, all different nations. We baptize them in verse 19 of Matthew 28. It's something He's called us to do. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. First thing I guess I would want you to notice about that is the fact that by by listing Jesus, the Son, right next to the Father, that doesn't just elevate Jesus. I think I say it that way sometimes. It acknowledges that Jesus is elevated. It acknowledges that Jesus, the Son, is indeed the eternal Son, the Son of God, who's on the same level as the Father and the Holy Spirit. So when we baptize people, we baptize them in the name of the triune God. Jesus was not merely the Nazarene. And God made that clear to everyone when He raised Him from the dead after having Him crucified. So we baptize disciples. It's one of the things that we do. It becomes essential to this discipleship process. 
And it is a way for people to stand up and say, I am a loyal subject to the king. His name is Jesus. So I will be visibly, through ceremony, identified with him by being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son. That should really stand out to us at the end of Matthew. The Son and the Holy Spirit for everyone to see. And the great thing is, by being baptized as a disciple of Jesus, tonight, 6 o'clock service, four people are getting baptized. By being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are saying, we acknowledge the sovereignty of Jesus. We're doing what He said we're supposed to do. And we, as a church, who, who, who we gather around them, and if you will, we baptize them. The great thing is we're doing what Jesus said too. Because when someone is a follower of Jesus, they're a disciple, they're a subject of Jesus, what are you supposed to do? Well, right off the bat, what you do is you baptize them. And ultimately, the reason folks are getting baptized and we are doing the baptizing is because we see Jesus as having all authority because He rose from the dead and He said, do it, so we should do it. Which does what? By recognizing His sovereign authority, we glorify Him. We worship Him. We, we honor Him. If this was, were, were the religion of Pat, or the religion of Lori, or the religion of Sue, or Mike, or Bill, or Frank, or whatever, you might do it a different way. What's up with getting somebody wet anyway and sticking them underwater after their hair's all nice and done? Not talking about myself, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, why, why, why would we do this? Because Jesus has all authority. And he says, do it, so this is what we will do. We'll say this is, a, this is a good and valid ceremony for all times for disciples, and so we're going to do it. And the rest of us who are disciples say, this is great, this is exciting, because they're going to boast about Christ and what he's done, and they're acknowledging his sovereign lordship over their life, which is to acknowledge reality. And so we say, this is great, we will join them in saying, yes, indeed, Jesus, you are the sovereign king. We worship you too. Your grace is powerful. Your grace is marvelous. As an aside, I will mention to you that when you do read the New Testament and even you read New Testament history and, and, and different things, one thing you don't ever find, you never find an unbaptized disciple of Jesus. It's unheard of. That's kind of a, a modern day something. I was going to say aberration, but that would perhaps be offensive, so I won't. It's unheard of. Because if you're acknowledging the sovereign kingship of Jesus and He has all authority and, and God raised Him from the dead and, and, he, and He tells us we're supposed to do this which implies it's right and good, it's what you do. That's why we say first act of obedience. Drawing attention to His sovereign lordship, that's ultimately what it does. Okay. All authority, universal authority... That's a great thing about the Great Commission. It emphasizes the greatness of Christ. Universal reach. No one is off limits. And now we move to a third. Universal obedience. Universal obedience. And again, this wouldn't make a lot of sense if it weren't for what came before. Look with me, if you would, then at verse 20. So you have these disciples. You baptize them. And then there's something that's ongoing. Teaching them, i.e., the disciples of Jesus, who we've recruited, if you will, from all nations, all different kinds of people, to observe all, there's our universal word, that I commanded you. What is a disciple to do? What is a disciple to do regardless of what their religious background is, regardless of what color their skin is, regardless of what their family heritage is? What is a disciple to do? A disciple is to obey Jesus. After all, that's the nature of being a disciple. You're a subject of Jesus. He's the king. Do what he says. And so what is our part in that? As we uh, are disciples and we reach out to others, we tell people they should obey Jesus too because you're a disciple of Jesus. And by the way, you should observe everything that he commands. Do everything that he says. And again, there's been enough pluralism you know, creeping into our, our, our blood and minds and, and we're kind of thinking to ourselves, well, do everything you say? Well, we're supposed to tell people to, to do everything that Jesus says. Which implies that we're supposed to do everything that Jesus says. Who do you think you are anyway? Jesus, God? 
Yeah. It's precisely the point. The whole argument of Matthew has been he is, in fact, the unique, eternal, sovereign king, the Son of God, which means he is the God-man, which means he, therefore, has all authority, which means, therefore, what he says goes. It's great. It's great. Universal obedience. from all authority. Well, there are a couple of assumptions being made in this that I want to flesh out a little bit, if you'd bear with me while we do that. This, this assumes some things. If Jesus has all authority, tells us to go to all peoples no matter what, and we are to, to tell them to do everything that Jesus says, this, this is assuming that you, as a disciple, are also committed to disciple-making. Think with me about this. It's not overly profound. If His disciples were to go out and make disciples of all nations and to tell them to do everything that Jesus commanded that would include making disciples, right? He commands them, make disciples. And then when you make disciples, tell them to do everything I told you to do. Disciples, therefore, will be told to make more disciples. This is a perpetuating thing. This is going to go on and on and on until Jesus returns. So, and I left one component out. If you're a Christian... Acts 11 would have us know for certain that means you are a disciple. Just in case you have some funky, clouded thinking that somehow thinks that a disciple is not a Christian and a Christian isn't a disciple, um, that's something that certain men have imposed upon the Scriptures. It's not biblical at all. Read Acts 11 sometime. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. And if you are a disciple, you are a disciple-maker. As sure as Jesus is in charge of everything and He has all authority and we're to make disciples of all nations, we're to teach them to observe everything He commanded, which would include making more disciples. And this is sometimes where we get a little uncomfortable. Because we think, you know, I thought that's why we paid that guy. If you just read your Bible, it's amazing how much impact it has on, you know, Christian philosophy. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple, and if you are a disciple, you are a disciple-maker. I suppose we could get really profound and suggest if you're not a disciple-maker, maybe you're not a disciple, and therefore you wouldn't be a Christian. But now I'm starting to sound way too much like Jesus, because He would say things like, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. And that's way too hardcore for us, so I'm not going there. If you're a Christian, you need to be committed to telling other people about the greatness of Jesus, that He's the sovereign King. There's forgiveness in Him and teach them everything that He commanded. You get the idea. This is something that that, that impacts all of us. There's another assumption, and that is that disciples, who are also therefore disciple-makers, are committed to doing what Jesus said. Because how can I, as a disciple, make other disciples by the grace of God and tell them to do everything that Jesus said to do if I myself don't do what Jesus said to do? I can tell you right now, if I'm not doing what Jesus said to do, I'm not going to tell other people to do what Jesus said to do. This, there, there's, there's implied motivation here for godliness and submission and obedience for us as Christians. There's another assumption. And that assumption, as we look at this, is that disciples, who are therefore disciple-makers based upon this text, know what Jesus said to do. Right? This is where the simple becomes profound. 
Because I can't tell other people to do what Jesus commands, especially since I'm supposed to teach them everything that He commands. That's the universal. If I don't know what He commands. So now I'm really motivated to go back to Matthew 1.1 and reread and think, I need to know what Jesus says. I need to know what He says about Himself. I need to know what He says about forgiveness. I need to know what He says about redemption. I need to know what He says about the government. I need to know what He says about obedience. I need to know what He says about false teachers. I need to know what He says. I need to know Jesus. Or how can I have other people know Jesus if I myself don't know Him? And this provides a great, great motivator for us to know Jesus and to know what He says because we can't do what He says on this level if we don't know. It should be a great motivator for us. I want to know what He says about Himself and salvation and government and marriage and children and taxes and religion and hypocrisy and morality and forgiveness and dealing with sin and prayer and what He says about the Old Testament, the future, about money, about being a disciple. That's just my short list. One more thing before we move on. Please don't misunderstand. Please don't think in light of all this obeying everything that I commanded that somehow you become a disciple by just working harder and harder at following Jesus. Jesus himself didn't even teach that. Jesus himself taught clearly you believe in him, you trust in his death, you trust in his work, and you find redemption and forgiveness in that. So what we're seeing here in no way undermines salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You would find all of those things in the teaching of Jesus himself. But make sure you understand that a disciple, a Christian, is one who in fact submits to Jesus and does what he says. A true disciple does. Let's move on to the fourth and final universal in the Great Commission that stresses the greatness of Jesus. And that is his universal presence. Verse 20 goes on to say, And behold, notice I today am boycotting the word lo. If you have a New American Standard translation, I think it's time to update that. How many of you are excited about something and you say lo? <laughs> uh, lo and behold, maybe. Even that's antiquated. It's great we have a Greek New Testament. We can see what the original word was and see the idea. The idea? Behold! This is exciting! And if, and if I read, and lo... Low? Anyway, don't mean to meddle, but that's why I boycotted it in Scripture reading. Some of you thought, what Bible is he reading? How many of you have a Bible that says, Behold? Good job. The elect are among us. <laughs> All right, verse 20. And behold, or low if you're a traditionalist, that's fine. I am with you always. There's our universal statement. Even to the end of the age. And I read that and I, and I say, that's impossible. If you are another religious zealot teacher, a mere man, that is impossible. You're, you're making a claim that, that can't be done. You're saying you're going to be with us always as we're out making disciples of all nations. It can't be done. If you're a mere man, we've seen that he's not. And this becomes very, very practical for the early disciples. Why? Because they're supposed to go talk to the Romans and go talk to the Jews and then go talk to everybody else and they're supposed to go and tell them that Jesus is the sovereign king over the whole universe, the Jew who, who was born in Bethlehem of all places. Bethlehem? The Nazarene of all places to be from? And he's the sovereign king and you must submit to his sovereignty and come to him on his terms and embrace him and him alone for redemption and forgiveness. <sighs> eh, we'll cut his head off. We'll crucify him just like Jesus. You're fired. You're kicked out of the family. Oh, we'll even have a funeral for you even though you're not dead yet because you, have, you are dead to this family. The disciples really needed this by way of encouragement. Believers today really need this by way of encouragement. This hard thing that we do, sometimes I think we think it's too hard because today we live in a pluralistic culture and that's so hard. Think about how pluralistic it would have been then. 
but we're getting more and more like them. That's encouraging. It's really hard to look someone in the eye and tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. At least I find it very hard. Knowing, based upon what the Bible says, that apart from the sovereign grace of God, they are going to think that I'm the whack job. It's kind of hard. You know what makes it easier? Is that I have this strong sense of conviction and knowledge that, that Jesus is with me in it. It encourages me. It gives me comfort. That's the positive side of it. I'm with you in this. I'm with you always. Even if it means the stake and the flame. Or being asked to move out of your house, like has happened to some of you. There's also the negative motivation. I'm looking somebody in the eye and I'm telling them the truth about Jesus as having all authority as the way and the truth and the life. I mean, I really like people to like me. I want people to think I'm educated. Not some kind of, you know, fire and brimstone, wide-eyed fundamentalist, crazy man. You know, the temptation is really there to, to fudge a little bit. You know what, maybe the gospel has edges. Maybe I could just, you know, trim the edges off a little bit as I'm talking. And, you know, and as they say things that are totally wrong about Christ, maybe I can just kind of let it go or you know, kind of, sort of, in a hidden way, maybe look like I'm affirming them, but in my heart I know I'm not. (laughs) Am I the only one that ever thinks like this? (laughs) To know that Jesus is there with me is a great, great motivator for me not to edit His message and the truth about Him, to not redact His message and the truth about Him. I, I want to stick to the script. I want to not trim it down. I want to say what's true with love and compassion as He would. But there's great, great motivation in this universal presence from Christ for us and not just for the original disciples. Let me say too that if you're uh, ever really you know, wanting to, to feel the presence of Jesus, let's just say you know, you're just kind of down and you're thinking, you know, you just feel like Jesus isn't very close to you and you've grown away from each other. Sometimes people talk like this. You know what I would suggest? Try evangelizing someone. There's no better way that I've found, and I'll use this as textual support, for feeling close to Jesus than when you evangelize people. Typically for me, that's because it scares me out of my socks and I'm totally depending upon Him. But after the fact, I've got this kind of spiritual high, you know, this rush. I just got done boasting about the greatness of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's what I'm supposed to do and I did what I was supposed to do. And you know what? I can read Matthew 28, 20 and know that Jesus was with me in that. There aren't very many statements like that in Scripture. One last thing, and that's about relevance. When it comes to, I'm with you always, universal presence, read how the end of that verse goes. Even to the end of the age. That is, I take it, the the end of time as we know it. That little phrase tells us volumes about the relevance of the Great Commission. Jesus has all authority. He says, you, as you are going, literally, you make disciples of all different people, target audiences, everyone, no matter what, and you teach them to do everything that I say, and I'll be with you in it, even to the end of time as you know it, this present age. That speaks volumes about relevance. He just got done rising from the dead. He's looking to the future, to His return. And as He looks to His return, He's giving this command. So until He comes back again, this will be relevant for all Christians. So we don't need to change the message. We don't need to change the methodology. We don't need to tweak it and change it because, you know, times are a-changing. 
the one who has all authority, said, you do this, I will be with you, and I'll be with you till the end. That's great. So we need to stop trying to tinker with the message, stop trying to improve the message, and simply do what he said. Because it is the relevant message that transcends every culture. Of course it transcends every culture. At the very beginning, he said, it's for all the cultures. All the nations. We just don't make any sense at all when we start tinkering with things. It's right here. When you hear, great commission, please, at least, you might have lots of other feelings. You might be motivated. I hope so. You might feel guilty. If need be, I hope so. You might feel encouraged. I hope so. But please, before you feel or think anything else, please, for the rest of your life, the Great Commission is about the greatness of Jesus. That's the key to all of this. The motivation, the conviction, the breadth, the depth, the devotion, about him pray with me if you would father thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity for me to pour my heart out i trust as a pastor that we would embrace the true jesus the jesus who lived and died and rose again from the dead and who spoke and was not silent so that we wouldn't just be self-deluded and consumed with our own authority and our own wisdom tossed here and there by every new trend and by every new idea and concept and philosophy, that we would always go back to Christ, Christ Jesus, who rose again from the dead and has your backing and affirmation. We would submit to his authority and that we wouldn't get cute and creative and somehow have it be about ours. We would love to be used by you, God, in this place, in this community, in this city, in this country, in other countries, And Lord, as people come from other countries here, Lord, as people who are just like us or totally different from us, we know that we have one thing to talk about, and that's the supremacy of Christ. And we want to do that. God, please use your Holy Spirit and your word to glorify Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.